Well, good morning. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, if you're looking at the Black Chair Bible, you'll find it on page 1079. And I'll be reading in verses 1 through 11. We're beginning a new sermon series uh, over the summer in the book of Second Peter. Uh, we'll be spending five weeks in this book with Pastor Ryan and Pastor Drew, Ryan Dennis that uh, was up here this morning, who you heard last week. Uh, each of them will be taking a section in the book of Second Peter, so I'm going to take the first section this morning. Now, I am mindful that this uh, will be my last sermon that I preach here at Faith Church. I'm going into retirement today. Um, you know, oftentimes in Scripture, uh, you'll read of authors or speakers who are mindful of the last time uh, that they're writing a letter or speaking to an audience. Uh, Peter is mindful of that here in this letter. A little later in chapter 1, verse 14, he mentions that the Lord Jesus made it clear to him that he would soon lay aside his tent that is, his body. Now, I don't know how long I'll be in this tent, uh, that is, my body, uh, but I'm keeping this in mind that this may be the last time that I'm up here. So let me, with that in mind, read to you Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simeon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of, of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, Knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted, has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly provided for you. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Father, we come before you with a very precious text of Scripture that speaks directly to our hearts and minds. 
We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would illumine our minds, help us to see what you want us to see this morning. Give me the grace to speak uh, truth from your word as it applies to our lives. We thank you, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Here's the main point of this passage. It's in your bulletin on the sermon notes page. Put it up on the screen above. By God's divine power, we have received his precious promises, which enable us to live a virtuous Christian life. Our spiritual growth, however, requires making every effort to apply these promises. I've entitled this sermon, Making Every Effort to Grow. Notice that in this statement on the screen there, that there's something that God does. It's his divine power. It's his precious promises. But then there's something that we do. Uh, We are to make every effort. It's a both and. It's not an either or. And so the first point of this passage you'll see on the screen, it says that it's God's divine power that has given us everything we need for life and godliness. By way of introduction to this letter in verse 1, Peter identifies himself as Simeon Peter. It's a combination of his Hebrew and his Greek name. Usually we see the spelling of his name as Simon, but Simeon is the spelling that Peter grew up with. Scholars suggest that perhaps he's appealing to both his Jewish and his Greek audience. Maybe he's giving his natural birth name, Simeon, and the, and the name that Jesus gave to him, Peter. He then identifies himself as a slave uh, of Christ. Um, the word there is doulos. It's his perspective as a slave. He was bought with a price. He's a slave of Christ. Michael Card had this to say about the word slave. Like the cross, slavery is both paradigm and paradox. The cross, the most excruciating and pervasive symbol of suffering and death in the first century, has come to represent for the followers of Jesus the only way to peace and life. In the same sense, slavery, which represents the total denial of freedom, becomes for the follower of Christ, the servant Savior, the only means to the realization of true freedom. Jesus came in the form of a slave, not to offer us freedom from slavery, but a new kind of slavery that is freedom. That's what Peter's referring to when he calls himself a slave of Christ. He's also an apostle appointed by Christ to represent him in his teaching and his letters. Conveys authority. Peter is saying, you can trust what I have to say. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. We also see in verse 1 who Peter is writing to. It says, to those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ may not seem very specific in identifying as readers, but it does say some very significant things. They received a faith through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They received this faith. It's a gift, and it's God's righteousness imparted to them. This is what God does. It's his righteousness, not, not theirs, that saves them. It's all grace, not works. 
This faith is equal to ours, Peter says. That is, these readers have the same standing as the apostles. Their faith, whether Jews or Gentiles, is of equal standing before God, regardless of race, gender, nationality, even church office. We're all on the same level ground as before the cross. But before, uh, there's something else unique being said here. It says that it's the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's a clear statement of Christ being called God. Scholars make much of the Greek construction of this phrase. Both God and Savior refer to Jesus Christ. Peter's acknowledging that the one he knew personally, the one he walked with for three years on, on earth, was God incarnate, God in the flesh. In verse 2, Peter gives a salutation, may grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It's a prayer of blessing on his readers that they would continue to experience an abundance of grace and peace in their lives. And that grace and peace comes through the knowledge of both God the Father and his Son, Jesus. Having the right knowledge is essential, and it's a key theme of this letter. Knowledge is mentioned seven times in this letter. In chapter 1, we'll see he mentions it five times in eight verses. If you combine it with the word know, uh, it's 16 times in these three short chapters of the book. Grace and peace, wonderful blessings can be multiplied in our lives through knowing God the Father and Jesus our Lord. So in verse 1 and 2, we see that in Christ, God has given us our faith. He's given us our righteousness. He continues to give us grace and peace. In verse 3, Peter continues to focus on what God has given us in Christ. We read that his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness. God has not only given us our salvation or life in Christ, he has also given us the ability to live the Christian life. It's by his divine power. Peter is making a profound statement here. It's by God's divine power we're saved, we become children of God. It's by God's divine power that we have eternal life. It's by God's divine power that he has given us everything we need to live godly lives. You know, for 30 years, I have been involved in counseling individuals and counseling couples in my office and Every week I hear stories of what people struggle with, whether it's their family upbringing or painful life experiences or their health problems or their difficult relationships. And so they come to me as a counselor looking for answers to their problems or their struggles. What's the answer to their problem? Wayne Mack, in a journal article on the sufficiency of Scripture in counseling, quotes John MacArthur, who tells a story about a man who was shut out of his house on a cold night. Uh, the doors were locked. He suffered some unpleasant consequences during the ordeal, all of which he could have avoided had he known the key to the house 
was in his pocket. You know, I could relate to this guy. I could just imagine going to my house and having it locked and trying to figure out a way to get into this house, not realizing I had put the key in my pocket. Can you relate to that? MacArthur writes, That true story illustrates the predicament of Christians who try to gain access to God's blessings through human means, all the while possessing Christ, who is the key to every spiritual blessing. He alone fulfills the deepest longings of our heart, supplies every spiritual resource we need. Do you believe that? Look at verse 3 again. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness. And it's through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Verse 4, by these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. Concerning these verses, Wayne Mack, he's a biblical counselor, uh, he writes this, Everything that is needed to develop this kind of life and acquire the qualities in verses 4 through 7 has been granted to us by God. How do we tap into these powerful, all-sufficient resources? Peter declared that these divine resources become ours through the true knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, through the medium of his precious and magnificent promises. In other words, the repository of the everything we need for life and godliness is found in our glorious and excellent God and his precious and magnificent word. Notice the triple agency here. It's the person of Jesus Christ. It's the power that emanates from him. It's the promises that he has given to us. Now, what's the benefit of the person, the power, and the promises that he's given to us. Well, he tells us it enables us to share or participate in the divine nature. That is, as humans, we are made in the image of God. We're like God in, our, in many ways in our humanness. That's our dignity, made in the image of God. But we are fallen image bearers ever since Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden caused us to experience our depravity, our fallenness, our fallen image bearerness. But when we place our faith and trust in Christ, that Christ died for our sins, was raised from the dead, we receive salvation as a gift and his righteousness is imputed to us. And we're given the ability to be transformed into the image of Christ. We become like Christ. We share in the divine nature. What does that look like? Well, Peter gives us a negative and a positive. Negative is in verse 4. He says, we escape the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. We know that's a process, don't we? We all get corrupted by the world around us. You can feel quite dirty living out there in the world, or it comes into your homes via TV screen or computer screen or your phone. 
feel dirty. We get cleaned up through the blood of Christ. After walking around in the world, we get our dirty feet washed on a regular basis as we come to Christ. And the less we are influenced by this corruption and its evil desires, the more we're participating in the divine nature, we become transformed into the image of Christ. That's the negative, escaping the corruption. But then Peter adds a positive here uh, to reflect the image of Christ in verses 5 through 7. But keep in mind, it requires something from us. Our persistence. Well, there you have it, four Ps. The person, the power, the promises, and our persistence. Verse 5, Peter says, For this very reason, because of what God has given to you in Christ, he says, therefore, point number two, make every effort to live a virtuous life. Verses 5 through 7, making every effort pertains to our responsibility, doesn't it? Some effort put on our part. The positive way of transformation into the divine nature, into the image of Christ, is the virtues given in verses 5 through 7. You know, scholars make much of the fact that uh, the way Peter wrote this early section of Scripture is a literary device common in the writings of the day. They refer to it as like a ladder or a chain. I'm going to use the metaphor of the chain for this series of verses. Uh, they're words linked together in a literary sort of way. So the second word of a pairing is repeated for the next pair. You see that through this passage and all these words are virtues. All these words are very positive words. And so it's not just a negative of escaping the corruption of the world. It's the positive of putting on these virtues. And, and these virtues are such that uh, we could actually become, by being transformed into Christ, a positive people. Can you, you know, so often in my everyday life, uh, everything I hear or feel or say is negative. And yet, if I had these virtues uh, living in my life and making every effort to have them part of my life, I can actually be a much more positive person, right? Uh, I love these words here, and, and you will as you go through them here. Uh, the first word is faith. Now, faith is our starting point in our relationship with God. Uh, it demonstrates our, our looking to him to give us that power to connect with him in such a way that he gives us the ability to live the Christian life. This faith that I received is mentioned in verse 2, the faith in the gospel. It's in God sending his son to die on the cross for my sins and to forgive me of my sins. It's my personal faith in God, a faith that is a virtue that actually changes me and helps me grow in my Christian walk. Now, many years ago, I um, just out of, of curiosity decided to look up all the Bible verses in, on faith and uh, came up with quite a list as you can, might imagine. But what struck me so much as I looked at the list of faith is how much of it is described in quantitative measures. Faith isn't some kind of of constant in us. It either grows or shrinks. And so a personal faith can be either increased or decreased. That's why Jesus says, 
uh, in Matthew 6. He says, O ye of little faith. And speaking to the centurion, he says, I have not found in Israel anyone with such great faith. In his teaching, he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed. The apostles oftentimes in hearing his teaching would say, Lord, increase our faith. Speaking to Simon before he went to the cross, he said that I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. In the book of Acts with Stephen, he was described as a man full of faith. Barnabas also was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Uh, In the book of Acts, as you read about the different churches being planted in their travels, they describe how the churches were being strengthened in their faith. Uh, But then in Paul's letters, you see this quantity of of those who are weakening in their faith. Or, Or in Romans 12, he speaks of the measure of faith that God has given you. Or Romans 12, 6, of the proportion given to an individual. And then there's letters in 1 Corinthians. He talks about standing firm in the faith, which means you could not stand firm in the faith. Um, In 2 Corinthians, he talks about walking by faith and excelling in faith and, and that that faith would continue to grow. 1 Thessalonians talks about strengthening and encouraging you in your faith. 2 Thessalonians talks about their faith growing more and more. And then when you look at the pastoral epistles, it's very striking because so often he talks about those who are, are strong in their faith, those who continue in their faith, but he also talks about those who abandon the faith, those who have denied the faith, those who have wandered from the faith, mentions wandering from the faith many times. And then in Second Timothy, Paul's last letter. He writes this, I have kept the faith. It's my prayer, standing up here, that I will finish well, keeping the faith given to me so many years ago. How are you doing in your faith? Is it growing stronger Or is it getting weaker? Make every effort to strengthen your faith by the power of God. Next virtue that Peter mentions is goodness. It's often translated moral excellence. It's used to describe Jesus in verse 3 in his own glory and his goodness. It reflects something beautiful about Jesus. It's a virtue, it's a quality that's attractive, it's wholesome, it's good. And as we're transformed in the image of Christ, we experience his goodness and we become good in our character. Knowledge. Knowledge, of course, is knowing what the Bible teaches about God. It's knowing him personally, it's having a relationship with God. It's knowing how to live the Christian life. 
You're growing in your knowledge of him, in your relationship with him, and knowing him better and better. Paul said it was his ambition that he would know Christ intimately throughout his days. Next virtue is self-control. Now, we can all see this as a virtue. You look at a list of these virtues, and the one that probably stands out to you as something you need to work on is self-control. You agree? Anybody agree with that? Uh, we all know there's areas of our lives which we would like to have more control, uh, but we need to see it as a virtue that God can help us with. And by his divine power, and we make every effort, we can experience more control in the areas that we need to grow in. What area of your life do you feel needs self-control? Next virtue is endurance. Endurance. You know, whenever I see that word, I'm reminded of the physical challenges that I experienced uh, about a year ago. So last July, um, I was beginning to really struggle physically. Uh, and I was struggling so much through July and August that they finally, uh, they scheduled a surgery for me in September. Uh, it, was, it was a long, long wait. You know, I was just miserable for about two months. Uh, and uh, so they scheduled it for me on September the 6th. And I went in for the surgery. Uh, and after the surgery, um, I was in so much pain. I, I've never experienced pain like this. Uh, you know, for me, on a scale of 1 to 10, I would describe it as an 8. I was having such difficulties, and, uh, uh, and they had me stay overnight two nights because of it. And uh, the first night, they did the saline flush every hour on the hour uh, with the lights on. And so I wasn't going to get any sleep. I was in pain. I was miserable. And I was just laying there you know, on this bed, strapped together. I couldn't get out, and I just felt awful. Uh, and um, I can remember the moment in that bed, middle of the night, my eyes shut. And I actually had these words float through my brain. It was almost, almost audible. He who endures to the end will be saved. <laughs> and then I decided, laying there, well, I'm not going to sleep. There's going to be a nurse coming in here every 45 minutes or so. I might as well write my last sermon in my head. So I actually did. I laid there, and I thought of all these Bible verses about patience, about endurance, about perseverance, about steadfastness. They all came flooding in my mind, and I started writing my sermon in my, my head. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I wrote this sermon in my head, but you're not going to get that this morning. Getting a different sermon this morning. Endurance. Endurance. What trials are you going through with endurance? 
Is it virtue in your life? Is the endurance producing in you a good result, as James says? Next virtue is godliness. I already came across this word in verse 3, where it says that Christ has given us everything for life and godliness. So he's given us everything to be godly, and yet we must pursue godliness. Interesting, huh? It means to be like God. It means to be transformed into his image. Sharing in the divine nature. Next virtue, I love this word. It's brotherly affection. It's, uh, the Greek word is actually Philadelphia. And a brother that lived in Philadelphia just moved back to Minnesota. I'll see him this week. It's a beautiful word for friendship. Christians should have lots of meaningful relationships. We're to be a family that shows affection for one another. The word precludes that you can just go to church service on a Sunday morning and call that going to church. We're to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. We're to have a sincere love for one another as brothers and sisters loving from the heart. It's the love of friendship. Friendship cultivated in community, koinonia. The last virtue given is love. More than brotherly affection, this is sacrificial love, agape. It's the love that God has for us. You notice in the book of 1 John, whenever he uses the word about God's love for us, he then says that we are to love one another. They're connected. So the sacrificial love that God did in giving us Jesus, his son, to die on a cross is that same kind of sacrificial love that we should show to one another. And according to John, in 1 John, we are most like God in our holiness and in our love together. You know, about 25 years ago, I um, actually uh, was working, this is before I came on staff as a pastor, and um, I worked in private practice with a psychologist who actually came to church here. That's how I got involved in the practice, and I came to church here. And the two of us decided to teach a Sunday school class here at Faith Church 25 years ago. We actually were in this, uh, most of you don't even know that it existed, but it was a trailer next to the building, and that's where we had this class. And for some of you that might know, it's where I met Rebecca Buckaloo, it's where I met Andy and Patty Hunt, uh, there are other people that some of you would, would remember. Uh, but um, we were in private practice together, and uh, we were hearing in the counseling community a term that was very popular at that time about getting in touch with your inner child. And we just hated that. And so uh, we decided to teach a class actually on 2 Peter 1, this very passage we're looking at. Uh, and we called the class, this is the title, When I Grow Up, I Want to Be an Adult. <laughs> and we talked about getting in touch with your inner adult. 
not your inner child, your inner adult. I want to be adult-like in every way that I live my life as an adult, right? So a few weeks ago, I was actually in the basement of our new home, and I said, I wonder if I still have the notes from that class. Uh, and so I went to this old cabinet, pulled out this drawer, and this old folder file, it said Second Peter, and I opened it up, and there were all my notes from 25 years ago of that class that I taught in that trailer. And so in it, I discovered this diagram, and you have it in your bulletin. It's on the screen if you don't have a bulletin. It's one that I created 25 years ago. Uh, back in those days, I was the diagram kind of guy, and just about every sermon I preached in the early days, I'd have a diagram for you. And so here's your diagram, and uh, it basically shows God as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, and it's his divine power flowing through our knowledge of him, flowing through his great and precious promises. And as we make every effort, we then put in these virtues. And there's that chain I was talking about, the chain of uh, faith and goodness and knowledge and self-control and endurance and godliness and brotherly affection and love. And by God's grace, as he enables us to believe and understand his great and precious promises, we can begin to grow in our Christian walk. Through his power, through our relationship with him, we make every effort to exhibit these virtues or qualities in our lives. I liken it to, you know, if you have a power tool of some kind, you know, everything in the power tool can do that work, but you got to make sure it's plugged in, right? You got to make sure that the power is on and to turn it on. So if, if the power tool or whatever device you're using that's electrical isn't working, you got to check the power source. But once you check the power source and you see that it's on, then you have to make every effort to use it in the right way, right? Uh, it's like your car. You know, your car has all the power in its uh, engine and, you know, all the other parts to it. Uh, but you got to turn the key on. And you got to put your foot on the, on the gas or the brake, depending on what you're doing. And you got to steer this thing, uh, you know, um, God can steer a car that's moving. It's kind of hard to steer a car that's stuck, right? And so by analogy, you exercise all these virtues with the effort that you have with the power that God provides for you. Now, can you imagine these virtues that you see up there? Can you imagine if that was true in marriage? That husband and wife related to each other express and experience these virtues together in their relationship. Can you imagine if parents, in relating to their kids, express these virtues, how healthy that home would be in the context of their parenting? Can you imagine if the kids grow up, want to be adults too, and, and embrace these virtues in such a way that they're very adult-like and mature and healthy and responsible? Can you imagine all these virtues reflected in a church family? How healthy would the church be if we were exhibiting these virtues in our relationship to one another? And so in the handout that you have, it's not on the screen, but it lists the promises. And what struck me 25 years ago as I did this, 
And I, just taking another look at it, I thought, wow, I was really, uh, God was giving me some good understanding into this passage because all the promises that are mentioned uh, in these verses, it's just so powerful. Uh, promises such as everything we need for life and godliness in verse 3, that we share in the divine nature, that's a promise, uh, that we escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires, that's a promise, that if we possess these qualities in increasing measure as we grow in these things, there's tremendous promises that comes out of that. And that leads us to point number three, go ahead and put that on the screen, about the blessings of an effective and fruitful life for Christ. He says here that uh, we keep from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8. Let me ask you, do you fear being useless or unfruitful? Think of the Apostle Paul in, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, he describes us standing before God. And he gives the image, in eternity we're standing before God, he gives the image of a man who looks at everything he built being burned up and he's running out of the house as though on fire. He himself is saved, yet through fire. Everything the man has sought or sought to accomplish, everything he's done has burned up. He's nothing to show for it. He himself will be saved, yet as through fire. You ever worry about that? According to Peter here, our knowledge should make a difference in our life. To know Jesus, to know God, to know the gospel should change your life. It's through the knowledge of him. Make a difference in your life. You know, a few years ago, a friend of mine, uh, they were moving away, and uh, they gave me a book. Uh, it's called Every Moment Holy, and it's a, it's a book of liturgy. Uh, and I wasn't used to praying liturgical prayers, but I thought this is interesting. It's a liturgy about lots of aspects of everyday life. But the one that really struck me that I actually have used in a prayer time from time to time is this one that's called Not Done Great Things for God. To be honest, there have been times in my life where I've struggled with feeling useless and unfruitful. And so I came to this particular chapter, and I read these words. How many times have I been told of Christ by well-meaning people that it is my destiny and my charge to go out into the world and do great things for you? How many times in response have I prayed earnestly and asking that you would bring such things to pass, that you might use me mightily for the work of your kingdom? How many times have I then waited expectantly and waited, and waited for that great thing, whatever it might be, to be made obvious. How many times have I felt then the gradually settling weight of disillusionment, of disappointment and confusion, when no great thing materialized, when no life-changing opportunity suddenly arrived at my doorstep, when no such moment of call or clarity was ever manifest at all. In the confused afterglow of those receding anticipations, I'm always faced again with the unglamorous reality of my own life. 
of my ongoing failures simply to love well the people around me, of my own ever-present struggle even to desire and to pursue a path of righteousness and obedience in my own small daily choices and habits. I am faced again with the same litany of tired old temptations, towing their attendant shames, and in such times I'm left, O oh Lord, wondering if I have somehow missed your call completely and whether I might just as well abandon this pilgrim path entirely, for I fear that you must see me as I see myself, unfit for any service for you or to your people or to this world. So tell me, my God, where's the disconnect between that life rife with breathtaking demonstrations of your power that I am told should be the hallmark of my walk with you? Where is the, where is the disconnect between those fantastic notions and the reality of my actual life, which is filled with petty frustrations, mundane responsibilities, constant reminders of my own failure to wear well the name of Christ? Was it wrong that I should even desire to do great things for you, Jesus? Am I amiss to plead that I might be mightily used in your works? Do I need more faith, more righteousness, more of your spirit, or have you simply judged me unworthy of your service? Where, O oh Lord, do I go from here? I prayed these words. There's a, what I will call a biblical counselor who speaks to this individual in the next section. This is what he says. O oh, child of God, listen well and be comforted. He has never judged you unfit for any service. He has called you to, for it is his Christ's righteousness. He has clothed you, and his measure of greatness has never been your own. If you would pray to do great things for your God, then you must pray such prayers without regard for how they should be answered. He goes on, he says, be invested, child, in simple obedience to your king, in long faithfulness to his call, shepherding daily those gifts and tasks and relationships he has entrusted to you, regardless of outcomes and appearances. Be content in the station he has appointed you to this, in this season, yet be ever ready to move at the impulse of his lo love. Tend well those things that are before you, however humble they may be. He will lead you in time to other good works he has appointed for you. Whether big or small is of no matter. He attaches no numbers to your service. It is your heart and faithfulness he appraises. You realize that what Peter is saying, it's your heart and your faithfulness. It's your love for him. It's your love for one another. That makes you useful and fruitful. And these are blessings of an effective and fruitful life. One author calls it a long obedience in the same direction. This is what I want. This is what I'm standing before you today at the end of. Peter says we don't become nearsighted and blind. If you are nearsighted and blind, it's because you can't see it. You really need the vision to be able to see accurately what God has called you to and how he's transforming your life with the virtues. 
If you're not growing as a Christian, that means you've forgotten your cleansing from your past sins. One of the things I appreciate about the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which we'll do in just a minute, uh, every week we have the opportunity in the Lord's Supper to remember the forgiveness of our sins. Don't forget the past cleansing of your sins. That's what gives you the power to live the Christian life. Peter then goes on in verse 10 to say that uh, we're to make every effort to make our calling and election sure. If we do so, we'll never stumble. The faith is a persevering faith. It sticks with it to the end. So that Paul could write, I have kept the faith. I've finished the race. We'll never stumble doesn't mean you don't sin. doesn't mean that you don't have difficulties in your life. But you get back up. The righteous man falls seven times and he keeps getting back up and he keeps going. He keeps persevering, persisting in his faith. Verse 11 is the wonderful blessing of a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Sadly, we've been reminded in recent months that we don't know how long we have to live on this life. You know, Jamie Phillips, the Lord gave her, I'm convinced, a rich welcome into heaven. What was she, about 65 or something like that? Susie's sister, Patty, died in December, 64 years old. I believe the Lord gave her a rich welcome into eternity the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You ever ponder the end of your life? You ever ponder this wonderful promise that you can live out your days effective and fruitful, and when you're gone, you are warmly welcomed into eternity by your Savior? Let's take a moment of silence to ponder this passage. We prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. 